Remember, family, have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. This is God's word. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, or some of your translations might say spiritual things or spiritual persons, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of those tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he pleases. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we love you, and we thank you that you have first loved us. We thank you, Lord, that you were compassionate and kind to us when we called out to you uh, in faith. Your spirit had already been at work, and you heard our cry, and we who were not your people became your people, and you um, continue your work of building us up and conforming us to your image and likeness, and that's our prayer this morning. Uh, We simply pray that you will make us more like Christ. Do this uh, for your glory through your servant, that your name will be exalted. Amen. So uh, this, this week, I purchased a medical journal, a PDF of seven pages, and it cost me $35. And it was kind of expensive, uh, but the topic intrigued me. It's a man by the name of Mitchell Leister, and he cites 85 sources, ranging from journal articles to the U.S. Department of Health, World Health Organization, the National Human Genome Institute, etc. And he captures stories of people who have received a heart transplant and a sudden acquisition of personality characteristics from their donor. You catch that? Here are some examples. I'm just going to do a few. He has over 25 in this article of people experiencing new things when someone else's organ is put inside of them. And so a 48-year-old female developed a sudden taste for green peppers and chicken nuggets after her heart transplant, food she never liked previously. In fact, as soon as she was allowed to drive after surgery, the recipient drove to Kentucky Fried Chicken and ordered chicken nuggets. And later, when she met the donor's family, she asked him if he liked green peppers. And their response was, are you kidding me? He loved them. But what he really loved are chicken nuggets. 
the recipient later learned that when her donor was killed in a motor, motorcycle accident, a container of chicken nuggets were found under his jacket. A 47-year-old white male who was a factory worker received the heart of a 17-year-old African-American male who was killed in a drive-by shooting. And the recipient described, I can't explain it. I used to hate classical music, but now I love it. And the wife's recipient says, he's driving me nuts with all this classical music. He never listened to it before. And now he sits for hours and listens to it. And he thought to himself, there's no way this African-American inner city kid liked classical music. So this can't be from the heart. Well, he met the donor's family. And this is what the family told him. Our son was walking to a violin class when he was struck by a stray bullet. He was not the target, and we don't know where it came from. But he died right there on the street with his violin case in his hand. He loved music. He loved classical music. And the teacher said he had a real thing for it. Another example comes from a nine-year-old boy who received the heart of a three-year-old girl who drowned in a family pool. And the recipient had no knowledge of his donor or how she died. But he developed an aversion to water following his transplant. His mother explained, Jimmy is now deathly afraid of water. He loved it before. We live on a lake and now he won't go outside in the backyard. He keeps locking the back door and the back walls and, and he's afraid of water and we don't know why. And then they discovered that the, the girl whose heart that is inside of him died drowning. I'll let the doctors in the room sort this out about memory and how memory is in cells and passed through organs. I don't understand it, um, but he's on to something. When you put a new person inside of an old person, the old person is changed. You begin to like things that you didn't like. You begin to desire things that you didn't desire. And that's true on the medical level, and we don't know why. But it's even true, more true, on the spiritual level. This passage is about the Holy Spirit. Did you notice how often the Spirit comes up? The Spirit, no one speaking in the Spirit, that you can't have these gifts except in the Spirit. Each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit. These gifts come through the Spirit. The same Spirit is repeated three times in one Spirit. In essence, this passage really is about what the Holy Spirit does when he takes residence inside of us that we begin to change. We begin to say things we would not say. We begin to feel things we would not feel. We begin to do things we would not do. And we began to do things differently that we were doing. And this isn't just true for individuals. This is actually true for the church that Paul actually expects that if the Holy Spirit is truly in the hearts of the members of the church in Corinth, then your lives ought to look like it. Now, why would he be so concerned? 
Because there are other spirits that have sway over us. There are other spirits that can lead us astray. And you'll notice that he says that I don't want you to be uninformed that when you were pagans, look at the text, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So some, something in the spirit world, these demons, these idols are leading you away from the truth. Look also down there in verse 10 that someone has this gift to distinguish between spirits. It reads as if Paul is concerned that some of y'all are wolves in sheep clothing. And what God does is like, wait, wait a minute, that ain't of God. And whatever they're saying is not of God. And so Paul's concern is that some of you may be spiritual, but you're not Holy Spirit filled. Now, N.T. Wright says, Paul faces the problem that we face in the Western world. There is confusion in people's minds between something that is spiritual and something that is Christian. And while they sound alike, they are not the same. And perhaps you've had a conversation with a friend. Oh, we're like each other. You go to church, I'm spiritual. Or maybe you have children who maybe walked away from the faith and as you love them and serve them and try to bring them back home to Jesus, they say, no, daddy, I'm spiritual. Oh, no, mama, I'm spiritual. You see, I do this. And what Paul is saying is like, look, there is a difference than being spiritual and being filled with the spirit. And what he wants us to do, each one of us, including this man right here, is to examine our own hearts. Is there evidence of Holy Spirit inside of you? That's the million dollar question. If it's not, you are bound for destruction. You're being led astray to lies. But if Holy Spirit is in you, you will begin to say things you didn't say. You will begin to feel things you didn't feel. You will begin to do things you would not normally do, and you begin to do the things that you would not normally do differently because the heart of the person of someone outside of you is now inside of you. And so that's what I want to think about in the passage. He's looking at some marks of being indwelled by the Spirit. If there is evidence of the Holy Spirit inside of you, praise God. If your answer is no to some of these, I pray that today the Holy Spirit will give you life. So what's the first mark from this passage of being indwelled by the Spirit? The first mark is that you're born again. You've been converted from darkness to life. That's the first mark. And I know we get so caught up in all the external showings of power and spirituality. But at the end of the day, the first mark of the Holy Spirit is to remove the scales of darkness so that you can now proclaim and you mean it that Jesus is Lord. Now, look at the text. He says, uh, those indwelled by the spirit before anything else are born again people. Did you catch his language? I don't want you to be un, uh, ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to and by mute idols. 
however you were being led by them. That's Paul's way of saying at one point you were in the world. At one point you were following the flow of the world. You thought like the world. You spent your money like the world spends its money. You did what the world did. You went where the world went. You thought like a prisoner in bondage and in hostility to the king of kings. And then something happened. For Paul, it was in Acts when he went to Corinth and Jesus appeared to him in a vision and says, hey, I want you to stay here, that I have many in this city who are mine. And Paul stayed. And for a year and a half, he preached and he preached and he preached. And some of them turned from their idols to the living God. Some of them realized that God sent his son who knew no sin to become sin, that we in him might become the righteousness of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit put them on a path of a beautiful horizon. I'm going to conform you to the image of Jesus. I'm going to make you love him and desire him. I'm going to lead you home. I'm going to give you a new song in your mouth. You used to say, like Paul says, that Jesus is accursed, but now you say what? Jesus is Lord. What used to come out of your mouth does not come out of your mouth anymore because Holy Spirit has made Jesus Lord. I recently listened to a sermon by Matt Chandler And he says, demons believe that there is one God. Demons know that Jesus is the son of God. The difference isn't if Jesus is Lord. That's not up for debate. That's true whether you believe it or not. The difference is, is there a pronoun in front of his lordship? Is he my Lord? Is he your Lord? Not is he a king, but is he the king? Not if he he is a high priest. No, 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 no. Is he your high priest who makes atonement for your sins? Not if he's a Messiah, but is he the Messiah? Not if he he is a, a way to heaven, but is he the way, the truth, and the life? If you have arrived at a place, not generically that Jesus is God, but if he is your God, and your king, and your Lord, then guess what has happened? The Holy Spirit has done that. He has opened your eyes. He has called you out of darkness. He has converted you. So we went on our honeymoon. We went to San Diego, but we stayed in a little town called La Jolla, in the pink hotel kind of on the sea. And uh, we, we honeymooned there because Karen liked SeaWorld and their zoo. And we wanted to go to Tijuana, Mexico. And we decided to do a day trip up to L.A. And so we asked our little concierge, hey, we want to go to L.A. Tell us what to do, where to go. And they told us, hey, these are the touristy things. And she said, hey, whatever you do, you just got to get out of there on time. Like, you, you just don't want to be in L.A. as foreigners with foreign plates they're late. And so she says, hey, you just need to be leaving around 3.45, 4.45. I can't remember the time. And so we went, and we went to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles, right? We went to Chinese movie theater, Hollywood, all the stuff that tourists 
do in L.A. But then we're kind of watching the clock the whole time because she told us like, hey, you got to get out of there on time. And so we're literally kind of running to our car to get out. And so we get out and we're driving back to San Diego, back to our beautiful turndown service, back to watch seals and whatever we watch, like on the, the ravine going into the ocean. And right behind us, you could see why she wanted us to leave. It's traffic. And a cloud of smog like I've never seen in my life. And we made it out. And it was behind us. And what was in front of us was beauty. That that is what Holy Spirit does when he converts you. He tells you, you got to get out. He tells you there's a cloud of darkness that's going to descend upon that city. He tells you you're going to be caught in the ebb and flow of everybody else caught in traffic and stuck. Or you can take this new vision of this new horizon where I'm taking you and it is beautiful. Holy Spirit rides shotgun in your car and he drives you home to be with Jesus. The first mark of the Holy Spirit is he takes you out of your darkness and brings you into beautiful light. Which moves us to the second mark of the Holy Spirit. Spirit prompted compassion. He makes us compassionate people. He makes us compassionate people. We are by nature selfish people. Ask anyone who has a kid who does not have to be taught my. And no, we don't have to teach our kids not to share. They go through the phase where everything is me and everything is mine, and they are miniature versions of who we are at our core. We're selfish. We're self-absorbed. We look out for self. And here's the thing. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is other-centered. That in Mark chapter 1, he sees a man born with leprosy, And before Jesus does anything, Mark tells us that he saw him and he had compassion. In Matthew, when he saw the crowds, before he did anything, he saw them and he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Whenever Jesus encountered fracture and need and suffering and lack, it deeply moved him so much so that Isaiah says that Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And here's what we think. We actually think that Jesus's earthly ministry is every aspect of it is in the Gospels. But John tells us that if you actually knew everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did, there is a not amount enough of paper in the world to contain everything about Jesus. So what we get in the Gospels is just one page. It's one page of an anthology of material. And what you see is that Jesus is compassionate. And so multiply that a billion times a billion Jesus Christ walked around the earth grieved about what he saw and compassionate beyond measure and so it makes perfect sense that if we are remade after the likeness of Jesus 
that compassion is going to be up there on the list, that that Holy Spirit is going to make us like that. Now, I think it's indirectly in this text. Think about these gifts that we're going to be talking about. Not in detail, and, and to not, this morning we're not going to talk about cessationism and what gifts continue. There's another time for that, and we'll get to that. But you're going to notice that on the one hand, there's a gift of wisdom, right? That's the top. But what is wisdom pushing against? Foolishness. Right? There's a gift of knowledge. But what is knowledge pushing against ignorance. There's a gift of healing. But what is healing pushing against? Brokenness. There's a gift of the miraculous, the supernatural coming in and bending things right or suspending what is normal post the fall and making things like they should be pre the fall. Now, why do you need the miraculous? Because you have what is miraculously broken in the world. Now, why do you need the gift of tongues? It's because the curse of Babel makes language a barrier for people hearing the truth. And why do you need the interpretation of tongues? Because even if you can utter things about Jesus in a language you do not know, there are two sides to language. It's hearing and talking and then receiving it and processing it in a way that you can understand it. And so each one of these gifts, are, they're pushing against what is fractured and broken. Do you see? And here's what Paul expects. He expects that when you see ignorance, that you will want truth. That when you see someone crippled, that you will want them walking upright. That when you see someone bound in sin, that you will care enough to want them free. Right? Isn't this at the root of all of their problems in this church? When it gets down to it, y'all don't care about one another. You go and eat the communion meal without waiting on the poor. And you get drunk on the communion wine and you overconsume and you leave nothing for the poor. You don't care. You're looking out for your own self. Why do you have your father's wife? You know why? Because you don't care. Why do you want to leave your marriages? You know why? Because you don't care. Why do you go and sleep with prostitutes in the temple and not make love and build up your own wife? It's because you don't care that at the heart of what Paul is calling out in the letter is their lack of compassion. That's what he's calling out. And left to ourselves, we don't care. But when the Holy Spirit takes residence, we begin to care. So this week, we lost two giants in our faith. Harry Reeder was the pastor of Briarwood. I didn't know Harry that well. Um, Met him when we were support raising for RUF and had to speak at their missions conference. Um, But we also lost Tim Keller. And that's, of the two, that's who I knew 
the best. Michael is Tim's son. Michael's been in our pulpit. And uh, Michael is a close friend. And I'm in a cohort with a group of guys who all left RUF around the same time to pastor churches. And we kind of vowed that until the Lord calls us home, that we will get together every year. And we were blessed every cohort in the spring and in the summer, Dr. Keller would join us when he was going through chemo. He would join us during COVID. He would join us on Zoom. When we went to New York, he would join us. That he not only taught us how to live, he's also taught us how to die. And here is what he writes in one of his own books about himself before he was a Christian. This is from his own pen that I am so thankful we have it. This is what he writes in his book, Generous Justice. Practicing justice and compassion did not come naturally to me as a child. Growing up, I shunned the only child that I knew well who was poor. His name was Jeffrey. He was a boy in my elementary and middle school classes who was homeless and lived under the A Street Bridge. In my school's tightly ordered social system, there were insiders and there were uncool outsiders. And then there was Jeffrey. He was in a category all by himself. His clothes were ill-fitting, thrift store garments. He smelled bad. He was mocked mercilessly. He, ex- he was excluded from games and conversations. He was penalized in classwork since no one wanted to work on group assignments with him. He says, I confess. I avoided him because I was one of the uncool outsiders and was hoping to improve my social standing. Instead of identifying with Jeffrey and recognizing the injustice on how he was being treated, I turned on the only kid who was more of a social outsider than I was. You hear that? That's him as a kid and a middle schooler saying I was not compassionate. Colin Hansen has written a biography on Keller. And Colin Hansen interviewed Keller, but he also interviewed Keller's friends from Bucknell University, where Tim Keller went to school, where Tim Keller got converted in InterVarsity. Right? Shout out to Chandra. In InterVarsity, he gets converted. And they track down Tim's roommate and college friend, Bruce Henderson. And Colin asked him, do you remember when Keller got converted? What happened? He says, of course I remember. I remember the day. It was my birthday. And Tim was sitting at the foot of my bed waiting for me. And something was different. Something significantly changed. Tim repented and trusted in Jesus. And there was a drastic change. He was a heck of a lot kinder. You could read him, reach him emotionally. All of a sudden, he was present with you. He was there. And on the heels of James Meredith being shot in Mississippi, the killing of four students at Kent State, Keller began to be a compassionate activist in our ministry and on our campus. Do you hear the before and after? He's telling you, I didn't care. And when he met Jesus, his roommate says, he started caring. 
Do you see, beloved, that when the Holy Spirit rescues us, we cry out that Jesus is Lord, but we begin to feel what the Lord felt when he walked this earth. Men and women of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Which moves us to the third point. Diverse, spirit-empowered gifts. That's the, that's the third mark. Diverse, spirit-empowered gifts. Did you catch what Paul? Paul is basically saying, you say Jesus is Lord and you mean it. Yes, that's a mark. Then you begin to feel in your bowels what Messiah felt. But then Holy Spirit does something more than that. He actually gives you capacity to do something about the compassion. You catch that? Compassion is the feeling, but the giftedness is the capacity by the power of the Spirit to use these manifold gifts to push back the darkness and to bring shalom in measure to the world. Now, notice what he says. There are varieties of gifts, same spirit. Varieties of service, same Lord. Varieties of activity, same God. In other words, the Holy Spirit will, if you situate yourself in a church and with a covenant community, he will actually give you opportunities to serve. He will actually give you ministries to be a part of, and he will actually give you gifts to use in the context of the body. Now, some have the gift of wisdom. That's not mere knowledge, but it's the practice of applying it skillfully. Some have knowledge, this capacity to learn and retain truth. Others have the gift of faith, not so much as the intensity of their belief, as you hear in kind of the word of faith movement, but it's a deep trust in the grandness of the object, right? Some have the gift of healing, had the gift of healing, have the gift of healing to bind up sickness in the body. Others can do miracles in the name and power of Jesus. Some have the gift of prophecy. Not a new revelation, but the ability to apply God's revealed word situationally. Others can discern spirits to protect the flock from wolves in sheep clothing. Some are given the power to speak a language you've not learned so that others can hear the gospel in their known tongue. Others can interpret this language even if you don't quite know what you're saying. And all of these gifts are empowered by the same spirit. We have a position on these gifts, and we'll get into this more next week. But the point here is not to argue about which gifts continue. This audience would have known exactly what Paul meant. What Paul is actually saying is the same spirit who gives you compassion. is the same spirit who gives this body capacity to do something about the fracture of the world. And did you notice who gets the gifts? Look at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually. So underline each one. 
Look at verse 6. There are a variety of activities, but the same God empowers them all in every one. Look at verse 7. To each of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, one person gets this gift, another person gets this gift, everyone gets some gifts, no one gets all the gifts because you're not Jesus, but no Christian gets nothing and gets left behind. And this is not just a New Testament concept. If you go read Exodus 28, 31 and 35, when they were building a tabernacle, the Holy Spirit came upon people to give them the ability to make the priest attire. The Holy Spirit came upon them and gave these men this ability to fashion metal and make these manifold plans of God. The Holy Spirit came upon, and the text says it, men and women who turned in their bracelets and their earrings, who could sew, who could make these things that are patterned by God. In other words, they could not build what God required to his standards unless God's spirit came upon them to enable them to do it. And so Paul is picking up on that same thread, the same God who poured out manifold gifts then to the whole body is pouring out manifold gifts diverse to the whole body now. One of my favorite Disney movies is The Incredibles. Amen. I heard somebody say amen. If you're one of the five people who have not watched The Incredibles, I would implore you to go watch The Incredibles 1 and 2. It's a Disney movie. It's family friendly. Hmm? Disney movie, family friendly. And it's about the Parr family. And they're what you call supers. And daddy has the gift of supernatural strength. And then you discover that mommy is also Elastigirl. And she can like stretch herself really thin and fit through those doors right there. And then you realize Violet, the sister, she can make herself invisible and can, and, and can create force fields. And then Dash, the little boy, he has super fast speed. And then there's little baby Jack-Jack that nobody thinks has any gifts. And he actually got most of the gifts. He can teleport. He can shoot lasers. He can summon lightning. He can change himself on the molecular level. And you're holding him. And he becomes heavy as lead. And he drops on your foot and crushes your toe. And here's the big idea of the Incredible series. Not one of them has every gift, but they're a family, and they each have some gifts. And when they each use their own native gifts, they are unstoppable. They are incredible. And that is what Paul is saying in this passage. You got a gift, and you get gifts. And you get gifts. It's like Oprah. Everybody get a gift, right? <laughs> Can you imagine what it would look like if in this church we all knew our gifts 
and knew our lane, and we used them to the glory of the Lord. You see, we, we talk about preaching the gospel, but this is a part of the gospel. If you read Ephesians, Paul says that when Jesus Christ ascended, he poured out gifts to the body. He did not leave us empty-handed. And some of you can preach and teach, and some of you can administrate. Some of you practice healing through your work. Some of you have administration. Some of you have the gift of being generous. The Lord has blessed you with so much money, you can't spend it all. Right? And I want to say thank you. A lot of you use your gifts here. You serve in the nursery, and you teach our youth. You do counseling. You pick up our elderly. If you're elderly, you pray through our bulletin. Some of you walk into hard situations to care for the needy. Some of you get here so early that some people are still asleep, and you're here adjusting the thermostat and getting water. Some of you come here on Saturdays, and you prepare the sacraments. Do you see? These are activities and services and gifts that God gives his body, and I want to say thank you. But I also want to challenge you. There's something called Pareto's Principle, and what Pareto's Principle says is that 80% of the work is usually done by 20% of the people. And that's easy to happen, that can easily happen in a church. And some of you have gifts and you don't serve and you don't use them. A gift of the Spirit is not spectating. That's not a gift. A gift of the Spirit is not consumerism and complaint. The gift of the Spirit is discerning where has God uniquely built you and what has he endowed you with. My Bible says everybody gets a gift. Even our 10-year-old kids who get baptized when they pray to receive Jesus this morning. What would it look like for us to be a church on mission together using our gifts? That's a mark. Which moves us to our last point. I'll make this one quick. There are two ways. Spirit-shaped service. That's the last point. Spirit-shaped service. He converts us. We feel what Jesus feels. We have capacity to do something in small measures to push back the darkness and care for the body. And then the Spirit not only helps us to do that, but he changes how we go about doing it. Now, there are two ways to use gifts. The first way is worldly and common. We get a gift and we instantly want to build our brand and our name. We, and that's what Paul is pushing against. What they're actually doing is, hey, your little gift don't even matter. My gift is important. Like, that's what Paul is calling out in this section. But that's not of God. In fact, 
there's a way to use our gifts here that is countercultural. Your gifts are never to build you up. They're, they've been given to build up other people. Did you catch that in the text? Paul says it in verse 7. That to each, each person is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You know what that means? My gifts aren't for me. They're for you. And your gifts aren't for you. They're for people sitting next to you. Now, where would this idea come from? It comes from the Trinitarian language in our passage. Did you notice what Paul says? Right there in verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, same spirit. And there are varieties of service, same Lord. Varieties of activities, same God. So who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. So what Paul is actually saying is the giving of our gifts, they flow from the Trinity. And here's the thing about the Trinity. It's one God in three persons. But here's the beauty. When the Trinity gives gifts, he actually expects us to use gifts as they relate to one another. So how does the Holy Spirit relate to Jesus? Jesus tells us, I'm going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to glorify me, not himself, but me. And then he prays, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. What you get in the Trinity is each person of the Trinity content to bless the other person so that the father is being blessed by the son and the spirit is blessing the son and the father is blessing the son and the son is glorifying the father that in the trinity each one is vested in the good and glory of the other and so when god saves us and gifts us That's what's pumping in your heart to glorify other people and not yourself with your gifts. Do you see how beautiful this is? That we exist to glorify and serve one another. Those are the four marks of the spirit in this passage. You call them Lord and mean it. Holy Spirit did that. You care about fracture in the world. Holy Spirit did that. Using gifts to build people up. Holy Spirit did that. Using gifts not to pedestal yourself, but to pedestal others. Holy Spirit did that. That is evidence of the Spirit. May this be the kind of church that we are. And if we fall short, may we repent and endeavor a new obedience. We're gonna close with singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I picked that hymn because there's a line in it that I think is beautiful. Martin Luther writes, and though this world with devil's fields should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And then he says this, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. You hear what Luther is saying? 
if we're going to persevere until the end and be protected from the enemy, Holy Spirit and the gifts of the body being used in community is a mighty means of God keeping you. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the truths thereof. Father, make us a people. You're not shaming us, Lord, into serving you, but you've given us so much in the ascension of Jesus. Father, help us to be a church uh, that looks more and more and more like you. And if there are those under the sound of my voice who answer no to all of these marks, might today be a day where they cry out by the Spirit, you are my Lord. We bless you. Amen. Let's stand and sing.